0: Candyman, 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 candy Hey, welcome back to Giovanni Andrioli's Movies and More, where I talk about movies and more. Alright, I am back at it with another bonus episode. You're welcome. I'm really excited to talk about this one. As I was taking my notes and doing research and stuff, I, was, I didn't realize that there is a lot of really interesting things going on with this, even more than I had initially realized. So I'm really excited to talk about this. But before I do... I want to quickly preface this by saying that there's been 13 episodes of the main show so far, and I think by now I've pretty much gotten down the format and the structure for it pretty well. It's not perfect, but usually I start with the movie or start with a story, and then I either interweave them together, or they can be totally separate, but sometimes I have a story to go along with the movie. You know, you've listened to episodes before. And they're they're generally the same. It's a pretty similar structure, regardless of what episode you're listening to. But I like that these bonus episodes are a lot shorter and can serve to be a different form of podcasting. So the last time I'm, I was on the mic for a bonus pod, it was about Spider-Man leaving the MCU. So in that one, I did my best to dispel some misinformation that might have been going around. And I pitched some ideas that I had for where they could take the franchise in the future. And then in the first bonus episode, it was just a story that I couldn't fit into um, a, an episode in the main feed. So I'm thinking maybe not necessarily every episode is different, but I like the fact that this shorter form podcasting can give me the opportunity to try some just some different formats and... I realized that recently because this episode is going to be a much more heavily researched and well-prepared episode than the ones I normally do. So, I just wanted to quickly preface it by saying that uh, you'll have to let me know what you think about every episode being a little different and alternative to what I normally produce. Alright, all that being said, let's get into it. So I'm going to divide this episode into three pretty distinct sections. Uh, I'm going to talk about the movie first, and then I'm going to talk about the differences between the book and the movie, and then I'm going to go all the way back and talk about the history of this movie and the history of Cabrini Green and some of the more interesting stories from production. So without further ado... This movie is fantastic. You probably don't need me to tell you that, but I'm going to say it anyway because this movie is fantastic. Now, I think I've said before that horror movies don't usually scare me, Uh, like especially when I watch them, even if I'm totally alone, which I wasn't when I was watching Candyman. I was uh, uh, definitely not at school, definitely not watching it while I did art. Listen, it's fine, okay? Other kids watch all kinds of stuff on Netflix while they work on art. It's it's cool. Art rooms are very chill. But yeah, that's where I watched most of this movie. And you're probably thinking, that diminishes the scare factor by a lot. And you know what? You're probably right. It might have worked differently where i watching it alone in an empty house on a Saturday. But I, I don't know. It still worked. It was still very creepy. And it had a a good atmosphere. And I liked... A lot of the overtly scary elements, they're very esoteric and unique and stuff that you don't see a lot in horror movies. So I was refreshed by that and I appreciated it a lot. I will say that horror movies do often scare me after the fact. I know I got on this mic and... Did I talk about us? I think I talked about us. I'm pretty sure I talked about us on this podcast. But uh, yeah, no, I did. I definitely did. You know what, guys? I have a really hard time with remembering what I've talked about on this podcast and how many episodes I have. It's it's a real struggle for me. I'm not I'm not sure why, because this is 100% my brainchild. Like, no one else really pitches in, so it should be up to me to know all this stuff, but for some reason, I just don't. So, fact check me, but I'm 99% sure I've talked about Us, and when I talked about that movie, I... believe I said that it didn't really scare me it definitely creeped me out and unsettled me but it wasn't that scary I will admit that sometimes you know like right before I drift off to sleep I'm like wouldn't it be real creepy just if like ah Lupita Nyong'o was at the the foot of my bed right now just doing that weird creepy face and then I'm like should probably pull that blanket up a little higher, huh? I mean, so yeah, they kind of scare me after the fact, like if I think about it at an inopportune time. But usually when I watch them during the viewing, I'm not super overtly scared. And, and that held true with this one. But a lot of it definitely was creepy and chilling in a way I wasn't expecting it to be. Uh, I think the prime example of that is Tony Todd's performance as Candyman. I know there's probably some affectation to his voice that was done in editing, but the first time you really hear him come into the movie, like, and he's actually, you see him, and he's there, and he's talking uh, to a character, and he's saying, you know, like, Helen. That was really creepy. And just, like, the the empty and, like, kind of cacophonous space that is the... Uh, the parking garage and then you know it it just kind of it's echoing around and then you just see him like way off in the distance in that wide shot and he's just standing there all cool and calm and it's it's extra creepy that it's not trying hard to scare you he's just being super chill and he just happens to be like really terrifying and that's awesome Another thing I think that adds to the effect of of him, his presence in the movie is Virginia Madison's performance. She's also really good. She's playing a much different character. Uh, Candyman is sort of just living his life, you know, being pretty chill and murderous and having a hook for a hand, and being a secretly mis- misunderstood artist. But uh, but she's playing a lot of different things. She's playing confusion, and she's playing. This genuine desire to reach out and help a very marginalized community, which is, it's very rare, especially in that time. And the way she's perceived by people, she's playing a person who has to make a very deliberate effort to convince people that she's actually there to help. And that's a very interesting role to see her play. And I think she does it very well. It's pretty deft the way she maneuvers through all of that stuff that the movie asks her to play and then she's also playing you know a terrified victim and then the the way she's she goes from uh from totally convincing you through her performance that Candyman is there and he's terrifying and look there he is and he killed one of my friends and all this stuff and then the way she can also play uh, like the dichotomy of Is she or is she not legitimately crazy? Like, is is she just seeing him or is he actually there? And I think that's really interesting too. She does a lot of things in this movie. There's a there's a pretty broad range, and then she's even got like stuff with the wife kind of thing, and and how it kind of starts off as like um, as like a pretty normal relationship, and then there's you know there's certain hints to her worrying about him being unloyal and then there's then that desperation to see him and and all that and that's all really really good I think that all makes you feel for her and understand her struggles a lot and it's a it's a really good performance it does a lot in a very short amount of time so I like that a lot Uh, I mean honestly I don't think there's a bad performance in this movie Child actors have a pretty notoriously bad rap but the the kid in this movie is is pretty good. He doesn't have a huge role but I like I like when he does appear. And all the residents of Cabrini Green are really really good and her friend and her their relationship it's so genuine and it does really hurt when when she dies and then when uh Helen dies at the end too. So All of that, I think, coalesces in a really, really interesting way. And then I also love how the husband, who you kind of see as... You kind of distrust him, and then you see him as sort of a jerk because of the people he hangs out with, and then the fact that he totally abandons Helen as soon as she's in the mental institution for, you know, like, the younger model, quote-unquote. And then you also eventually kind of come around to understanding that he is legitimately in pain over her death and how that pays off. Uh, Which, speaking of which, this movie has a really good ending. It's so weirdly ambiguous and mysterious, and I love it. And I love how, like, inadvertent it is that it it takes you a second to go back and be like, oh, oh no, he did say that five times. Like, that. yeah, that was all... That was all really well done, and it's very atmospheric the way it's lit. It's got an interesting color palette, and the way she looks as the horror movie villain. That's a really cool look. Like, that could be a whole nother horror movie monster in and of itself. That's a really cool design. And then, uh yeah, just ev- I mean, even going a little further back, everything with the ending is really good. Her fighting Candyman in the the burning pile of garbage, and then her saving the baby, and the tragedy of her still dying. But then all the residents of Cabrini Green come to pay respects, which is really rewarding as an audience member to see. And then and then how she understands his backstory through the artistic renderings of it, through those paintings that he's been doing. All of that is really well done. And I love that none of it's overtly spelled out, but that it allows you to fill in the gaps and kind of come to your own conclusions about what exactly all happened. I think that's really good. And this movie does a really good job of playing all different kinds of emotions and uh, running you through the ringer of how you feel about Helen, how you feel about Candyman, whether or not you believe her and all kinds of stuff. I think this movie is really, really good so i'm gonna touch on the history of Cabrini Green and why that that setting is so important to this movie and its legacy in a bit so i'm gonna I'm gonna leave off on that for now um but just if you haven't seen it, I would really highly recommend this. It's a classic, and it's gonna probably be creeping back up in a big bad way because there will be a, a remake coming out next year produced by jordan peele and it's got an interesting independent director i think she's only ever made one film before so yeah keep your eyes out for that uh but before you see it if you have any interest i think you should definitely check out the original it is really good skip the sequels though not really worth seeing uh and and yeah in case you were wondering i don't really have any complaints i think this movie can be can be cheesy sometimes but that's just a virtue of when it was made uh, and how we've evolved in terms of cinema since then, um, the ending is, well, I did say I love its ambiguity and how mysterious it is, it is, uh, it is, it's kind of confusing, and it takes a while, you might have to sit on it for a while before you kind of come to your own conclusion about it, but it's, it's a good movie, I, it's a really good movie, I would highly recommend it, and the score, the score is fantastic, It fits the movie perfectly, and it's very unique. So all that performances, writing, character building, horror movie elements, score, everything, it's really, really good. Um, Alrighty. So let's move on to part two of this discussion. I want to talk about the differences between the movie and the short story. So this movie is based on uh, about a hundred page novella from Clive Barker. It's in one of his Books of Blood collections so he has I think there's five editions of the Books of Blood and it's the these collections of short stories short horror stories that he compiled into these volumes over the years uh he's a pretty prolific horror writer uh he's probably he's definitely not as well known as Stephen King but he definitely is is similar in, in terms of what he taps into, and they're they're both probably equally meritorious. They're both very good writers, and this is among one of his more famous works. So the predominant, there there are two really big differences that definitely change the the movie uh, to be. It's very similar, but it does have these two really important differences that set it apart. So, the first is that the novella is set in London, not Chicago, and it is set in a it says it's a housing estate, quote unquote housing estate in the book, but it's basically the equivalent of an American project. It's it's pretty run down and, and uh beaten up based on the descriptions of it throughout the the writing. And then the other key difference is that in the film, Helen is studying urban legends just as a whole and comes across Candyman and shifts her focus to that because it's what really grabs her attention. And then the in the short story it's she's studying graffiti. So graffiti is does play a very, in important role in the film as well, but it's not the focus of what she's writing about. That's part of what she's collecting information about, but that's only because of its close proximity to the urban legends that she's studying. That's not what she's studying. So it's a little different. It shifts the focus, uh, from the novella. But and then there's an, a few other smaller differences. Um, so because of that change, urban legends become inherently more of a theme in the movie. And it's more about the, the idea of, uh, communities that have been kind of outlined from society and suffer hardships on a daily basis. It touches on a theme of them using, scary stories such as this one to help them cope with the stresses of their uh, everyday lives and just because of the nature of the project being focused on graffiti that's less of an important theme in the novella uh and then because of this being a movie and not a book uh it's obviously not there's not as many you know, written descriptions of things, obviously. I don't really know what I'm saying, but but the movie, it does have the element of Candyman being very eloquent and well-spoken, and a lot of his dialogue is very poetic, which is just the general style of Clive Barker. His His writings are very poetic and Lovecraftian, and the descriptions that he uses are... I mean, I keep saying poetic, but that's the perfect description for them. So, they carry that element over in the the dialogue of Candyman. So that's a that's a similarity, kind of an homage. Uh, and actually, another pretty important difference is in the short story, Candyman is a white man, and he's described as more of a clown-like figure with yellow skin and then some other clown-like clown attributes. Kind of more of a Pennywise-like character than uh, what we see in the film. So that's, a, that's a definitely a very interesting diversion. But either way, I'm going to transition now into talking about the overall production of the film. And this isn't a situation where the writer hates the changes that were made to his work. A lot of this stuff so the the writer and director of this movie is Bernard Rose and Rose worked pretty closely with Clive Barker when writing the script to adapt his work and it was a a lot of these decisions these changes are all they were all signed off on by Barker uh, especially the change to to take it to America to take it to Chicago uh as long as it you know keeps the same spirit which it definitely does Barker didn't really have an issue with it, and it was actually, you know, a conclusion that he had reached separately, which was that the setting is is important, but it could also kind of be anywhere, like as long as it's it emphasizes marginalized community in a very not uh, not like affluent uh, section of a city. And then th- that was the important part, but the actual location, the country, the actual city in question, was sort of beside the point to that theme. So yeah, this is this is all done in pretty close proximity to the original creator. So a lot of this stuff is was almost an opportunity for him to expand on ideas that were originally there and give them more of a focus in a new adaptation. While we're talking about the production of this and the uh, originating ideas, I think I'll sort of save the whole mythology of Cabrini Green for the end of this discussion, and I want to talk about some other very interesting aspects to the production as a whole. So, originally, one of the many people considered for Candyman was Eddie Murphy, which you're probably thinking, uh, yeah, good choice not getting him, but I mean, this would definitely be a different take, and I would not trade. Um, I would not trade Tony Todd for anything, but this was during a period of time. So this film came out in '92, and Eddie Murphy was working on Vampire in Brooklyn and Beverly Hills Cop at around the same time. Uh, be- or Beverly Hills Cop Three, sorry. So Beverly Hills Cop Three came out in nineteen ninety four, and Vampire in Brooklyn came out in nineteen ninety five. Both of those movies were sort of inadvertently sabotaged by Murphy because this was during a period of time where he wanted to transition from being a comedic actor to being a legitimate dramatic star. So he wanted to make uh, Beverly Hills Cop 3 more of a legitimate action movie and less of an action comedy and Vampire in Brooklyn more of a, an actual horror movie rather than a horror comedy. And for both of those directors... It was a nightmare of a shoot, and they couldn't collaborate with Murphy effectively, and he was sort of just ruining movies that he was in at the time, because he was trying to do his own thing completely independent of what the script and the director were actually calling for. So, those movies are not very good, The end products do not reflect the initial visions of uh, those creators, and it was in large part due to Murphy's interference. So would this have happened this might have been an actual opportunity for him to play what he was trying to play in movies where that wasn't actually what was needed so i could see this working out regardless i am i'm definitely much happier with Tony Todd that's a much better choice but i did think it was interesting to highlight because that's a that's a crazy story like that it's crazy to me to think that Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy, especially how we think of him now, would ever have been considered for a horror movie villain, but I don't know. Could have been interesting. Definitely could have been interesting. So another thing uh, that that happened with this, so once the decision was, well, actually, I believe this was prior to the decision being made to actually transition this into Cabrini Green. Uh, There was a, Pretty uh, horribly overlooked design flaw in the development of the Cabrini Green housing projects. So there was the medicine cabinets in every bathroom. If you open the cabinet, you could basically punch through the back of it because it was pretty thin drywall. You could punch through the back of it. You had to crawl through a couple like pipes and stuff. And then you could punch right through another backing and you would be able to get right into the bathroom of the room you were adjacent to. So there were a few murders that happened this way and robberies, I believe, too. And the most publicized of all of them was the murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy. And she was trying to report to the police that she was uh she was in her bathroom, and someone was trying to crawl through the wall. She called the police. They they said that they'd be on their way. That they send a unit over. The unit came, knocked on the door. No one answered. She was dead. Uh, I believe that someone else called the police for a very similar incident a couple of days or maybe a week or so later, and they eventually ended up going back to check on this woman, and she, uh, when they found her dead. So that was one of the most highly publicized instances of, of these crimes being committed through the bathroom mirror. And uh, so, so there was a newspaper writer who covered this, who thought this actually might be a movie. He had done a lot of interviews and covered a lot of films. So he had some way of getting a connection to John Malkovich. He told him, hey, I think there's a movie here. And John Malkovich, was he agreed. And he was like, OK, let me see what I can do. We'll probably have to transition it to being about white protagonists, though. So that was a little bit different than the idea that this guy had originally pitched to Malkovich. And he was like, well, that's not really what I was intending to tell. That's not the story I was trying to illuminate. And he's like, well, that's not how Hollywood sees it. This guy never gets a call back. He assumes that Malkovich either never followed through or whatever he tried to pitch to some studio heads was rejected. A couple years later, Candyman comes out. There's a very similar story uh, with the murder of Ruthie Jean. And there's also a character in the film named... Um, let me find it here. Anne-Marie McCoy. So it's... It's pretty similar if you kind of combine those two names. That's basically the name of this this victim that this guy was trying to make a movie about. So the way he he sees it in this article he wrote uh, a while ago, it eventually did get to some higher-ups uh, in, in the studio system and eventually was incorporated into Candyman after they decided to move it from London to Chicago. So you might be wondering based on just that one story, and based on the, the movie that I'm, that I've been talking about, Cabrini-Green sounds pretty bad. So, you would be right, it definitely garnered that reputation, but it wasn't always that way, so it has a very interesting origin, actually. So, uh, it was a combination of the Francis Cabrini Row Houses and the William Green Homes, and they kind of combined and eventually became known, like, as the, the larger area became known as Cabrini Green. Cabrini Green was originally built on top of what used to be a World War Two slum. And slums... Or pre-World War Two actually, so I apologize for that. So slums in Chicago were notorious for being some of the worst in the country. There was horrible stuff, horrible stories from uh, around the 1800s to the early 1900s, stuff like rat infestations, no electricity, no running water, just people living in horrible conditions in their own filth. Sometimes, you know, it's like they're living in half burnt down buildings with little to no maintenance. And it was just generally horrible. It was a lot of places in the city were not nice places to live. And an additional part of the city at large, this as a whole, its history is, it's one of the most racially segregated cities in America, especially in the late 80s, early 90s. And it's also one of the most financially diverse cities in the country. Uh, it's not like New York, where it, there's pretty dif- like pretty definitive sections of the city where you're going to need to pay million dollars of rent and, you know, you're selling property for... Upwards of like three million dollars and everything, but that's that's pretty specific sects of the city. That's very, uh, very commonly places like Manhattan and Brooklyn, but it's obviously not going to afford you know, it's not going to cost that much to live in Queens or the Bronx or something like that, uh, or even Staten Island. So it's clear that there's there's sort of wealth divisions. Chicago's not like that. It's sort of more, you turn a corner and you've moved from the projects to one of the most affluent communities in the entire city, which is very much the case with Cabrini Green. It's on the near north side, and it's very close to, only a couple blocks away from, uh, the Gold Coast, which is one of the most predominantly white and very very affluent communities in the in the city it's one of if not the richest so that'll come into play later just keep that in mind so at first these were very very beautiful homes and the in the occupants raved about it they called it a paradise and some of the best housing that they had ever seen so it was uh Fixed income for rent and utilities based on a percentage of their annual income. Uh, as the high rises were established, they had elevators in every building. The tenants could control their own heat. They had private bathrooms. They had full separate kitchens, or kitchens. Sorry, kitchens, uh, and then open balconies and open courtyards, which are designed to encourage like a sense of community and and to get these people to know each other and create like a generally, you know, like a home for all these people. And it was it was going really well for a while and these were really well designed homes, except for that bathroom here thing, uh and, and people really loved them. And but there were some some problems with them that arose even from the very beginning. So knowing that these were being constructed very close to to rich taxpayers, they deliberately designed some aspects such as the the lettering and stuff to be more in industrial and like militaristic because they worried that the these rich people would get too uh too like worried about it or too fussy because they were worrying that all their tax dollars were providing amazing homes for people w- while they're also living in an amazing homes, So it's sort of like a jealousy situation that city council people were worried would happen, so they deliberately avoided by intrinsically designing flaws uh, and problems into the, the designs of Cabrini Green. And then the second biggest problem, which came a lot later, was basically just total disinterest in maintaining these, they were basically just dropped into the tenants and after or the tenements and after a few years basically left to fend for themselves Elevator elevators started breaking down pipes were freezing because of the crazy low temperatures that chicago gets in the winters uh, you know we got problems with with walls and broken windows and just all kinds of stuff that's happening and no one's coming in to fix them they don't they're not getting any any outreach or any help. And pretty much the only people that would help you were within the community itself. In addition to that, the housing administrations in Chicago were doing a lot to systemically discourage marriage because then the more people you're cramming into one tenement, then the more complaints they're getting, the more problems that's going to cause. And so a lot of these... These houses are now being headed by single women who are just raising their children. Uh, It was uh, apparently around the 80s and 90s, BBC reported 60% of Caprini homes were led by single women. So, that's a lot. And that's actually touched on in the movie with Anne-Marie McCoy, who is, um, she's raising her kid... Uh, her, her baby, and that baby eventually becomes kind of the the crux of the climax, so it's a very interesting aspect to all this. Uh, all right, so a few last things that I, I needed to touch on to kind of help feed into uh, kind of wrapping all this up, bringing it together. Uh, this was uh, an area that was often raided by police, so once gang tensions start to Uh, become a really big problem in Cabrini Green, and it's just very crime-ridden, and it's garnering a very poor reputation. Uh, A lot of times, instead of providing like genuine help or or things, they would just have these militaristic raids where just cops would come in and just take out uh, as many criminals as they could, and just and then a lot of the times it's you know not even rightful arrests, and and it was just a very poor strategy that really didn't uh, garner much change at all. And then one of the more famous examples of a fascinatingly misguided attempt to help Cabrini Green was the mayor at the time, uh, around the 80s, she moved into Cabrini Green uh, to demonstrate that she had a long-term commitment to uh, fixing it and, and helping the people there she only stayed for a month and during that time her arrest policies were also fascinatingly misguided and they basically didn't discriminate between a kid selling weed and like a like a murderer or rapist and so they were drastically unfair and it's just it was not a good situation at all but i've been telling you all this i've been setting the stage for really crappy living conditions violence and then uh, administrations that just either don't know what to do or just don't do anything. It sounds like it's probably, like, the worst neighborhood in Chicago, right? Actually, no, it never was, and still, especially now, it's completely gentrified. They took down all the high-rises and... There's a bunch of actually really nice stuff there now. There's like an indoor skydiving gym. There's a really big mall. Um, there's all kinds of stuff. So yeah, it's completely been remodeled and, and redone. It's a much nicer place to live now. But even even then, it was not the worst neighborhood in Chicago. Uh it wasn't the worst slum. wasn't any of this. The reason why it was so conflated and so feared was because of its cl- like very, very close proximity to the Gold Coast, to rich white taxpayers, and it was just a, a moral panic that really spread really far really fast because by the nature of the people that were spreading all these rumors and these stories and, and getting this all publicized, they were affluent white people, so they just get more attention and... And yeah, so that's a pretty big part of this. This movie spends a very long time humanizing the residents of Cabrini Green, and really making you care about them, and buy into their struggles, and understand the thematic importance of Candyman helping them cope and deal with what they're going through, and that you know it does a lot to make them not just this homogenous group, and. I think that's a very important aspect of this movie that has set it apart and allowed it to endure through the years. Uh, and it's, it's a big difference between it and other movies of, uh, of, um, similar ilk throughout the, the the 80s and 90s and they did a lot to really make sure that they were trying to keep this as pc as possible the filmmakers took a meeting with the NAACP and it seemed like the there's no official transcripts of the meeting per se but they the general tone from what we can gather from reports about it was that they appreciated them taking the effort but that really none of this worried them, and they didn't feel like it was enforcing stereotypes, and then it was actually quite progressive for a number of reasons, so it definitely, it's really cool to, to look back and see a horror movie that actually was commenting on something, actually kind of had a lot of foresight and was, I mean, I hate to use this word because it's kind of overused and, and weird, but I can't really think of another way to say it, it's, it was kind of woke for the time, it was ahead of the time, and yeah, that was that's that's very important and that i think is why we still look back on this movie all these years later and it provides a very interesting contrast to the the suburban uh like horror where it's like a a murderer in the world of suburbia or like out in a more uh rural setting like outside of the city and i think it's it's cool to have a, a different type of horror movie that puts it in a different place and really has a lot to say about how we regard that place and how it's important to legitimately want to help them. And then also seeing a side of it that's very different. I think, I don't know if I've necessarily made my point pretty well, but I I hope you understand what I'm saying. So yeah, this movie is great for that. And all the stuff that I've been talking about, from the origin of its production to the real life stories... Uh, and how they were conflated, to the source material, to the movie itself. I think it it's all ties in, and it's very important to understand all of it, to really have a complete look at this movie. And I think that's a big part of why it's so unique, and why it stood the test of time. Before I get out of here, I want to shoot off a really quick grateful... Uh, I'm just grateful for, uh, for... for friends and stuff and stuff, sorry, that was weird, but, but, yeah, just, like, chill, chill chill-ass friends, who are, like, always down to do something, that's awesome, man, yesterday, out of the blue, I was like, hey, my man, you, you want to go to an away game, which we don't traditionally go to away games for my, my high school football team, and he was like, yeah, sure, I'm down, and then he ended up staying the night, and we, we watched a movie together and stuff, uh, and that was, that was just cool, it was just, it's awesome to have people that are just like down for anything, and we can just go off and like do stuff, and it's really fun. So, uh, I'm very appreciative of that, and that's what I'm grateful for this time. Whew. Alrighty, next episode will be covering Creed and Creed 2, and then finally, it should be my last word on the epic Rocky Saga. Uh, and then after that, I think I'm going to be taking a uh, a short kind of break not necessarily like a full-on hiatus but I definitely want to move transition the the episodes back to more of a weekly release schedule around every Saturday because well I definitely like recording multiple episodes throughout the week and it and it gives me an opportunity to talk about a lot more stuff I understand that the constant flow of new content in your feed can probably be pretty overwhelming and I don't ever want it to feel that way. I don't want it to be like, oh my god, another one, I don't even have time to listen to this. And quite frankly, it's kind of difficult sometimes to record on school nights. So I think rather than overwhelming you the loyal listener and myself with being like, oh crap, I didn't record yet, but I also didn't do this one homework assignment. How am I going to get this all done and try to put this out in time? Uh I think I'm just going to try to negate all that by moving back to a more weekly release schedule. So nothing drastic or anything, but it'll probably be at least a week after the Creed episode, which will probably be released Monday, Tuesday-ish. There'll be at least a week gap between that and the next episode. So just wanted to give you a heads up about that. Uh, For for now, though, thanks for listening. I hope you found this as interesting uh, to listen to as it was to research. And if you have any other questions or comments about um, anything I've said... You, well, I could, I would encourage you to watch the movie and come to your own conclusions and do some of your own research because there's certainly things that I didn't even get into, uh, and I think I got into a lot. But, um, but if you don't feel like doing that, then you can definitely just talk to me about it. I would, I would love to chat about this movie or any other movie I cover, Uh, that would be really cool. So, if you want to do that, you can email the show at moviesandmorepod at gmail.com, hit me up personally on instagram at geovandrioli one uh you can follow the show's instagram where i post teasers for the new episodes so you can always stay up to date on what you can look forward to listening to review of next uh, i put that up at at movies and more pod on instagram so that's about all for me i want to thank you as always for listening and i hope you enjoyed and until next time Candyman, 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 Candyman